0: This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.
1: Today's podcast features Rachel Gable, the Director of Institutional Effectiveness at Virginia Commonwealth University. She recently released the book, The Hidden Curriculum First Generation Students at Legacy Universities, which is based on the experiences of over 100 first generation students at Harvard and Georgetown universities. Rachel, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and your core responsibilities as the Director of Institutional Effectiveness?
2: Sure. As you mentioned, I currently serve as the Director of Institutional Effectiveness at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and in that role, I support units across the university from administrative, academic, to student affairs, and athletics as they think about how to best fulfill the mission of the university and the vision that we set for ourselves, our students, our faculty, and staff, and the broader community. Institutional effectiveness is grounded in database planning and reflection. And it requires that we document the actual progress that we make on our stated goals. When we fall short of our aspirations, the practices associated with institutional effectiveness help us identify where we fall short and how we can address the gaps between what the university we want to be and the university that we are right now. Rachel, what drives you in this work? I got into this work because I've always been fascinated with how universities work on a granular level, person-to-person, to to transform people's lives and shape their communities. I'm also invested in taking a hard look at when universities fall short of their goals or behave in ways that are antithetical to their professed aspirations, such as systematically overlooking or discriminating against minorities, women, or low-income students. The book I wrote, The Hidden Curriculum, explores how two universities try to overcome their legacies of tacitly prioritizing wealthy students and their families. Universities are actively striving to close the gaps in the experiences and outcomes of their first-generation students and low-income students, and the book offers a perspective from a wide variety of first-generation students and their continuing generation peers in relation to how these schools are doing. So the students offer specific guidance for how to best support first-generation students and eliminate or at least attenuate any gaps in the experience between them and their continuing generation peers. This kind of work is the work that I do at a university level with units around the university for institutional effectiveness.
1: Yeah, now much research has been done broadly to understand the experiences of first-generation students or students who are the first in their families to attend college. Your book has a specific focus on legacy schools. What prompted you to look specifically at legacy schools?
2: Yeah, so when I started my doctoral program in education at Harvard, I wanted to study how particular types of college experience, the liberal arts core of many universities, affect students' narrative of self and their aspirations for their future. For instance, what specific experiences cause a student to change their major or their career path that they did not anticipate before coming to college? In my first semester of the doctoral program, my advisor, Richard Light, told me about a project that he was putting together among administrators at four universities to study the experiences of first-generation students that were being recruited to these schools at higher rates than in prior decades. These universities were all historically elite universities with long legacy ties, and they worried that they were not doing enough to support their talented students who came from backgrounds where college-going was not the norm compounding the specific lack of knowledge about how college works, many first generation students were also underrepresented minorities, low income students or from under-resourced high schools. Richard Leiden and his administrative colleagues on the project have studied the great work done by other scholars on how first generation student experiences and outcomes at institutions where they were most likely to attend, namely regional and often public institutions with less selective admissions. This research focused primarily on the most important outcomes desired for these first-generation students at these schools, persistence and graduation. But legacy institutions do not have a problem graduating their first-generation students. In fact, they graduate at very similar rates to their continuing generation peers. The work they knew that they needed to do at these legacy institutions was to support their first-generation students thriving which included a sense of belonging, agency, and fulfillment of their postgraduate goals. So when Light pitched the project to me, and he asked if I would like to be the doctoral student who conducted the majority of the interviews and the analysis of the findings, I knew that this project had the potential to shed light on my longstanding interest in better understanding how college affects students. Additionally, I wanted to participate in work that allowed students to shape the guidance that administrators receive about how to improve the college-going experience.
1: Yeah, now a core focus of your book is on what you've called the hidden curriculum, which is also something that's been noted before by the researchers, but as I understand the tacit rules and practices that are so embedded into campus cultures that they aren't explained when students start college. Can you share a few examples of how this might impact a first-generation student?
2: Sure. Common examples include how to address a professor in email or understanding the importance of office hours, or how to comport oneself during office hours, how to advocate for yourself effectively, or why you should join extracurricular organizations, how you compete in social life on campus, where, as one of our students put it, you have to apply for everything, including your social life. All of these unwritten rules affect first-generation students in part because when they arrive on campus, They assume that the hard work that they did in high school will open doors for them in college, and they find that they actually have to comport themselves in ways that were not normal to them in high school. And so they end up falling flat in the beginning and need a little bit more guidance in how to better advocate for themselves and better articulate their desires and their needs so that the folks at the university, the faculty, the professors, their peers, can better understand what it is that they're asking for and how they can help support their needs.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so if you were to recommend three things to legacy schools, like University of Michigan, which is where this podcast will get shared out, to make them more supportive of first generation students, what would you recommend?
2: I think that pre-college connections were a really important finding in this study Nonprofit organizations such as the Leadership Enterprise for a Diverse America or pre-college programs such as the Princeton University Prep Program have the potential to do a fantastic job preparing first-generation students for the expectations of college while they're in high school. What I love about these programs is that they operate on a model of appreciation for the diverse gifts, talents, and backgrounds of their students. There's no hint of the deficit model and how they support their participants. Instead, when students in these programs need additional support or coaching, they provide it in a way that emphasizes seeking support as a habit of successful people rather than a sign of weakness. So I would support initiatives that strengthen college connections for first-generation students while they're in high school. I would also emphasize funding for pre-orientation programs, summer internships, and study abroad. One of the most surprising findings for me in the study was how valuable study abroad was for first-generation students who participated. For first-generation students who struggled to feel like they belonged at the university, study abroad actually strengthened their connection with the institution and motivated them to be stronger self-advocates upon their return. But these programs need to be prioritized, and funding should be there to eliminate hurdles that first-generation students face when deciding whether it's worth their time. additional universities can communicate the value of these programs to families through one-on-one phone calls, webinars in multiple language, and pamphlets and Q&A sessions in multiple languages to help parents understand the value of these experiences for their students. Finally, I'd emphasize, or continue to emphasize, first-generation stories to incorporate a diverse representation of first-generation students into the narrative fabric of who the university is. As your listeners likely already know, first-generation students at our legacy institutions are an incredibly diverse student population, and the more we allow them to tell their unique and compelling stories, the less likely we are to typecast them or inaccurately assume we know what first generations want or need from the university without asking. Mm -hmm. Would
1: you have a standard template that universities could use to ask questions that don't build off of that deficit model like you pointed to, but instead really honor who they are and appreciation for their gifts so that other universities can follow in your footsteps and really making that first contact with first generation students respectful?
2: Well, I would think that one of the first things that I would emphasize is asking open-ended questions that don't presume a lot of assumed backgrounds. So I'll give you an example. There was a first-generation student in the study who talked about going to their first advising meeting with an important scientist in a field that the student wanted to pursue. And she sat down very excited in this, you know, panel-lined office filled with books and began expounding on the value of neuroscience. Well, the professor immediately interrupted the student and asked if her parents were also scientists. Well, the student felt flat-footed because she didn't understand why the faculty member was asking her what her parents did. She tried to evade the question, but the faculty member kept asking, and ultimately she had to say... No, my mom's a housekeeper and my father is disabled. This was very unfortunate because it made the student feel alienated and then, worse, exotified because the faculty member then responded by saying, Wow, you must be an important person in your community. Your family must be so proud. So the student responded by saying, To me, wouldn't it have been better if the faculty member just asked open-ended questions? Why are you interested in neuroscience? What can I do to help you pursue neuroscience rather than, oh, I guess your parents are scientists? So open-ended versus closed-ended questions or questions that presume that you're anticipating an answer that maybe you shouldn't anticipate.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, that's a great example. And I could see too, the awkward position the students placed in of having to now divulge information that she didn't want to necessarily with the faculty member, but maybe would have had the question just been asked a little bit differently. You know, one thing that you mentioned a couple times was teaching students how to advocate for themselves and how that's a piece of the hidden curriculum. Have you seen strategies that universities have used? to teach those skills to students, and what might they include? It seems like that's one of those like lifelong enculturated skills through family upbringing. So I'd love to hear what you've observed.
2: Sure. A number of the students in the study talked about how they learned self-advocacy skills from peers in extracurricular organizations, and in particular, in extracurricular organizations that were focused on building ethnic identity not necessarily students' own ethnic identity, but ethnic appreciation. So a Latino student joined the Black Men's Forum and learned a great deal about self-advocacy. I think that emphasizing the importance of peer-to-peer connections and the value of safe spaces on campus can help students to learn the skills of self-advocacy. In particular, a lot of this has to do with seeing oneself as deserving support and help at all stages of the academic experience in college. And knowing that it is perfectly reasonable and in fact expected that you should ask a professor for clarification when you have a question, for instance, on an assignment or with an upcoming exam. Not to think of your professors as frightening on a pedestal or at such a great distance, or so busy that you don't deserve to ask them for help or assistance on a project. In addition, the types of questions that are asked in assignments can be tweaked in ways that help first-generation students in particular, but also all students, to understand the hidden or the tacit rules of the assignment that are not explained, either in the syllabus or on the assignment. So creating more transparency in the expectations for what appears to be good work, providing multiple examples of high-quality performance, and also demonstrating through one's own practices an openness and a desire for change can all support first-generation students.
1: Mm -hmm. That's great of how faculty can, you know, by just clarifying and making explicit what good work looks like, it could greatly help students across the board. I love the quote that you just stated, which is seeing oneself as deserving support. I think that's so critical across the board with non-traditional students in general, when they see themselves as a minority population, whatever their intersectional identities may be. Just being able to, and I'm going to state it again because it was so well stated, seeing oneself as deserving support. Yeah, I see so many students wrestling with that, and even staff members wrestling with that willingness to ask for support. I've been feeling deserving of it.
2: I know that I have a very difficult time seeing myself as deserving support. <laughs> First-generation students in this study taught me a lot about my own limitations and self-advocacy. They really helped me to understand that I shouldn't go through the university context thinking that I don't deserve to ask for something that I want out of the university. So, yeah, and one of the things I'd like to say is that, you know, while this book focuses on how to support first-generation students, the other thing I'd like to emphasize and I'd like leaders to walk away from is a clear understanding that first-generation students have a lot to teach us. And they often are more honest about the kinds of challenges that universities face when they're trying to live up to their aspirations, because for them, they can easily point out our hypocrisies. They can easily point to the moments in which we said one thing and did another. So listening to our first-generation students may actually make life better for all of us at the university, students, faculty, and staff.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's so true. You know, this year's been a doozy. <laughs> you know, uh, before we started recording, you told me about how your family's at home. And, uh, you know, for all of us, it's just been a long 11 months now since the pandemic started. When you look back at your accomplishments over the past year, what are you most proud of?
2: I would say getting this book out there. I finished the book before the pandemic and before this last summer. Um, with the tragic death of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. When I started the book, the Black Lives Matter movement had begun on campuses, but it did not take the shape that it took until this summer. And I'm just so glad that the book is out, that it can help galvanize discussion, and that we can, when we return to campus, whenever we do, that we can focus on listening and learning from one another so that we can support the institution that we wish we would be, that is socially just, equitable, and inclusive for all of us. Yeah.
1: One of the aspects that we've really been focusing on, especially through the pandemic, is how can we support students with self-care? Stress is rising you know, every month that the pandemic goes on. How have you managed self-care and stress reduction, you know, during the past year?
2: Well, I've tried to give myself grace and watch a lot of movies and read a lot of novels and potentially eat more popcorn than I should. (laughs) But I think that the best form of self-care for me has been getting outside and getting into nature. And I would advocate that first-generation students, all of our students, really think about how they can build connections with their families with their peers but also with the world around them and if it means walking off campus I don't mean leaving the university for good but walking off campus and finding a nice pleasant quiet walk that you can take to just get away from things for a little bit to step away from the work I think that that can be really valuable
1: yeah if you could tell all first generation students one thing what would it be
2: well, the pandemic has definitely been so difficult and for so many reasons for all of us. But if you are first in your family to go to college, you might be thinking right now that you want to put a pause on your education. I would say that now more than ever, I would ask you to invest in your education, invest in yourself and in your long-term goals for your family, for those who look up to you in your community. And I would say go to your faculty and ask them if they can partner with you in supporting your continued growth and development. Go to the financial aid office, your work study staffers, the community tutoring center, anyone whose job it is on campus to help you to succeed. There are a lot of people who are asking themselves, what is the purpose of college and what is the value for college? But I promise that if you can stick through and to, you will find that many doors open to you and that you have a lifelong foundation that you can rely on.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful guidance, especially as we're seeing decreases in FAFSA applications and which students are most being affected in their college education. I'm so appreciative to have this time with you.
2: Well, I I appreciate it. And thank you for sharing that with me.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW Plus, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.